Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Our study today will be the entire chapter, verses 1 to 25. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever." And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burnt his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, all the statutes, all the rules given through Moses." Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but he paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raise it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army and all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that had been built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel." Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up Asherim and the images before he humbled himself, behold... They are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. Ammon sacrificed to the images, sacrificed to all the images, 
that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the grace that restores us from our sin, that enables us to serve you. Help us to marvel at this grace in our study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. King Manasseh and his son Ammon were the longest reigning king in Israelite history, 55 years for Manasseh, and one of the shortest reigning. But they held in common a deplorable record of evil and ungodliness. What T.B. Macaulay wrote of England's profligate King Charles II could equally have been said of this worst period in the entire history of ancient Israel. He said, Then came days never to be recalled without a blush, the days of servitude without loyalty, of sensuality without love, of dwarfish talents and gigantic vices. According to 2 Kings 21, 14 to 15, 2 Kings 21 is the parallel account to our passage, the evil committed during Manasseh's reign was so extreme that it was at this time that the Lord had resolved that he was certainly going to put away Judah and Jerusalem. I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and provoked me to anger. 2 Kings 21, 14 to 15, the legacy of Manasseh. Now, along with the contrast in the length of their reigns, the greatest difference between Manasseh and Ammon occurred as one of the most astonishing events in the entire Old Testament. And that's, that's saying something, but it is. For when the Lord judged Manasseh for his wickedness, this most evil of all of Judah's kings repented. He prayed to the Lord. He was forgiven. Christian writers suitably compare Manasseh to the famous preacher John Newton, who was dramatically converted to saving faith after a career in the African slave trade. The words of Newton's most famous hymn could well have been sung by Manasseh in his later years. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Well, the chronicler's introduction to Manasseh's reign tells us that he was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now, it is often assumed, if you study this, you will often hear that Manasseh, therefore, must have been born during the 15 years in which the Lord extended the life of his father Hezekiah. So if Hezekiah had only been willing to die when God told him he was supposed to die, without all the crying and the praying that led to the extra 15 years, then they wouldn't have been afflicted with Manasseh. As is so often true of those tales, this one is not true. The problem is that Manasseh reigned from 697 to 642 B.C., and that involved a 10-year co-regency with his father. Hezekiah reigned from 727 to 687 B.C. That means that Manasseh was born years before Hezekiah's sudden illness and prayer for his life. Nonetheless, Judah was inflicted with this monstrous ruler because he did not imbibe the faith and piety 
of his heroic father, Hezekiah. Uh, The chronicler summarizes, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 2, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Manasseh, you see, was not merely content to follow the idolatry and immorality of the nations that surrounded them, kind of your standard idolatrous betrayal of the Lord. No, no, no. He imitated more than that the detestable debaucheries that had moved the Lord to destroy the Canaanites centuries earlier when Israel entered the land during the time of Joshua. The Bible explains the genocide of the Canaanites. That's what it was. When the Israelites came, it was because the sin of the Amorites was full. And his sin descended to that detestable level. As soon as Hezekiah died and Manasseh took sole rule, he overthrew all of his father's reforms and he turned Judah in the direction of idolatry and sin. Michael Wilcock writes, he broke down the dikes which had been built up against the pagan religions and the surrounding nations, and it all came flooding back in. In this way, Manasseh provides an enduring testimony to how quickly and how severely a nation may turn from public order and morality into the most alarming dissolution when its leaders throw down the barriers to sin. Well, the chronicler provides us details of this wickedness, and he very closely follows here the account of 2 Kings 21, verses 1 to 9. First, Manasseh, verse 3, rebuilt the high place that his father Hezekiah had broken down. Now, ever since the time of Solomon, the, the Lord had decreed that sacrifices should only be offered in the temple in Jerusalem and only by the authorized priests. And yet, for many generations, the practice of worshiping at local shrines along a nearby hilltop had, con- had encouraged, had, had continued. Now, Hezekiah had valiantly reformed this practice. In fact, if you remember from many of the other, even the good kings, it'll say they they did this or that, but they weren't able to tear down the high places. Hezekiah was. He was a great reformer king. He valiantly did it. But then Manasseh rebuilds them. And what he was doing is he was encouraging worship that was contrary to God's word. That's what he was doing. But that's not where he stopped. He went further. Verse 3, he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and he served them. Contrary to Judah's prescribed monotheism, Manasseh encouraged a religious pluralism. And one might worship from a selection of deities representing the surrounding nations. It was a smorgasbord of idol worship. He himself worshipped at all of them, apparently hedging his bets when it came to divine help. Now, if this denial of Judah's faith was not enough, Manasseh then desecrated the temple itself. He built pagan altars there. The God of David and Solomon had said, verse 4, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. Now, that was establishing exclusive devotion to the Lord alone in his temple verse 4, but Manasseh, verse 5, built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Now, since the, the temple functioned as the place of God's special presence, these idols and pagan altars caused the Lord the gravest offense. Now, Manasseh sought to embrace, this will be familiar to you, a multicultural spiritual globalism. He highlighted not only the Baals and the Asherahs, those were the wicked idols of the nearby nations, but he also brought in the astral gods of the Mesopotamians. His model seems to have been his wicked grandfather. 
Ahaz, that disastrous king who had done the same thing. He sacrificed, this is back in chapter 28, verse 23, Ahaz sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. And and very insightfully, here's what he said, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. They work pretty well for them. Why shouldn't I get in on their worship? And so Ahaz thought that by his idolatry, he was keeping up with the spiritual Joneses, with the regional trends. And he was adding to Judah's spiritual resources. And yet, as the chronicler said of Ahaz, and would be true of Manasseh as well, they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Well, the embrace of religious pluralism inevitably leads to moral dissolution. It's important for us to know because we're living in a time of religious pluralism. And what happens when you see the, the bumper sticker on the car with the... Uh, with the uh, all the religious symbols are, are found there. The one that doesn't belong there is the cross because the cross is an exclusive religion. It says Jesus Christ alone. In Old Testament Israel was the same way. And the reason why religious pluralism, a smorgasbord banquet, you pick the God you want to worship, why it leads to moral disillusion is because none of them have actual authority and therefore the word of God does not have authority. If Christianity is one of many options, then the Bible is not itself the authoritative word of God. And in that scenario, there is a moral collapse, particularly when people are indwelt by sin. Now, Manasseh explicitly cast aside the Ten Commandments, and he plunged to the moral bottom. He he built on the sordid foundation of his grandfather Ahaz by institutionalizing child sacrifice outside Jerusalem. Second uh, Chronicles 28.20 shows how Ahaz had been the one to start it. But Manasseh got in on it. Verse, three, verse 6, he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son, son of Himen, Hinnom. So there's a ceremony where the king of Judah goes into the, the valley that Jesus would call Gehenna, this picture of death. There's a statue of, of Molech. And he would place one of the royal children to be burned alive there. And this was the religious religion of Judah. Now, child sacrifice was practically the only thing Manasseh could do to offend the Lord more greatly than by erecting idols within the temple. And like Ahaz, in doing this, he was was imitating the debased worship of the Assyrians. You go, why would it made them think of child sacrifice? Well, because Assyria was the dominant world power, and the Assyrians practiced child sacrifice, and they said, well, it works great for Assyria. Why don't we also do the same thing? Maybe we'll become an imperial power. That's the logic. It's a manipulation, a vain attempt at manipulating unseen powers so that you can partake of greatness. Like Assyria, they sacrificed their own children. Child sacrifice was, of course, on the list of the abominations that most profane God's people. In Leviticus chapter 18, child sacrifice is sandwiched between God's abomination of the Canaanite practice of homosexuality, that was the verse before it, and the verse after it is the abomination of sexual uncleanness with animals. Here's what Leviticus 18.21 says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Well, given his willingness to commit that kind of abomination, it's no surprise that Manasseh also embraced the occult. 
Verse 6, he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. Now, Manasseh's plunge into spiritual dissipation highlights how important it is then for the kingdom of Judah, but today for churches to give attention to the rising generation of leaders who will take over when current leaders are gone. We don't know why this son differed so fundamentally and drastically from the faith of his father Hezekiah, although we can imagine that the busy schedule of the aging king left him little energy for the discipleship of his son. That is always a mistake, a grave mistake. There is no excuse for us not to disciple our own children and then those who come into the church, young people in the church, that they might serve the church in years to come. You see, Hezekiah's neglect of Manasseh proved the undoing of all his great achievements. It was the ruin of the kingdom that he had saved for a time. The chronicler summarizes in verse 6 that Manasseh did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Something similar happens today when ungodly leaders come to power and they remove biblical restraints against sin. Andrew, Andrew Stewart writes, Foolish decisions and ungodly laws can so easily breach the dike and allow a flood of evil to sweep over society. It's the very thing happening today in Western nations, following the example of Manasseh and his ruin of Judah. Now, the chronicler points out a vital fact that apparently Manasseh had forgotten, namely that God's people had the privilege of dwelling in the promised land, depending upon them providing covenant faithfulness to the Lord, at least to a reasonable degree. You find this in verse 7. The Lord redeemed Israel to worship him alone, saying, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. The Lord had given them a settled rest. That's the point of verse 8. I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed from your father. But he did so on condition that they worshipped him only and they obeyed his commands. You see, God's people then and now were to be religious exclusivists, not religious pluralists. To to be a pluralist in in, in the worship of God is to deny God. It is not not to be a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian pluralism. Jesus said, I am the way and 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 the truth and the life. There is no other name in heaven by which we must be saved. No other, Peter said in Acts 4.12, Christianity, like Judaism in the Old Testament, is exclusive. And if the Lord alone then was to be trusted and worshipped, it followed that his word was to be obeyed. Verse 8, they had to be careful to do all that I have commanded, all the law, all the statutes, all the rules given through Moses. That's not actually calling for perfect obedience, but covenant faithfulness. And without it, they were going to be ejected from the land. Well, not only did Manasseh grossly violate, needless to say, this condition of Judah's occupancy, but he aggravated the offense by descending not even not only down to, but even beyond the disgusting moral and spiritual conditions of the Canaanites whom God had judged with genocide when Israel took over the land. Verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Well, For this reason, it was again in the time of Manasseh's reign 
that the Lord resolved finally to put an end to Old Covenant Judah. By the way, if you're keeping up with Jeremiah, he would have died about 14 years, 15, 12 years uh, before the, 14 years before the beginning of Jeremiah's reign. Verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done these things. It was the final straw. Now, the record of 2 Kings 21, that's the parallel account in the book of Kings, it only talks about the gross sinfulness of Manasseh, the very thing we have here, and, it, and the great offense he gave to God. Now, he did so because the purpose of the book of Kings is to explain why Judah fell in the Babylonian conquest, 587 B.C. The first and second chronicles differ in aim from Kings. As Chronicles, this is what makes this book, I think, so enjoyable. It's not addressed to those in Babylon, but it's those who've just gotten out of Babylon, who were coming to restore Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And so the question being answered by the book of Kings is, how did this disaster happen? And Kings gives that. It's a great book. Chronicles asks this question. Will God renew his grace to us after we have fallen? And see, the difference in purpose of Chronicles versus Kings accounts for the fact that while Kings makes no mention of Manasseh's repentance and restoration, the chronicler makes it the central item in his record of this man's life. Well, he is seeking to highlight God's grace, and so the chronicler notes how even in times of abject apostasy, the Lord was merciful by continuing to provide prophets who warned the people and the king. Verse 10 says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. By the way, church tradition holds, perhaps supported by Hebrews 11, probably, that it was Manasseh who executed cruelly the prophet Isaiah. But the prophets kept speaking, no matter how bad he got. At this point, Judah was the most guilty of all the people in the world. And yet the Lord, why? Because of his grace, he was faithful to continue speaking to them by his word. Now, we likewise must continue proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus, no matter how depraved our culture may become. You may say, well, at what point do we stop preaching Jesus? When he returns. That is the only time we see, well, what if it gets as bad as ancient Judah? God continued with the prophets, calling them to repentance. We must do the same. Now, the problem was that Manasseh and the people paid them no attention, verse 10, and that left the Lord no recourse but judgment. Now, the final judgment of Judah as a nation would come over 50 years after Manasseh's reign in the time of the prophet Jeremiah. The chronicler highlights here, however, God's personal judgment on the king himself. Since Manasseh would not listen to the prophets, verse 11, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now, the most likely historical scenario was the revolt against the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, that very interesting man. And that the revolt was by his brother, don't try to repeat this, Shamashum-Ukim, from his base. He was actually the ruler of Babylon. He was a, an under-king under Ashurbanipal. He ruled uh, uh, Babylon, and Shamashum-Ukim launched a revolt in 652 B.C. Now, it seems likely that Manasseh joined that ill-fated enterprise. So that when it finally was put down in 648 B.C., that's only a few years before the end of his reign, Manasseh was called to account. He'd supported the wrong side. He'd been disloyal to the Assyrian emperor. 
and he had to pay the price. Leslie Allen, I think, plausibly envisions a Gestapo-like delegation of high-ranking Assyrian security officers coming to Manasseh and taking him away in chains to Babylon. Why Babylon? Because that is where the rebellion, history shows, was squashed. Now, Assyrian archaeological relics, by the way, if you're ever in London and you should go to the British Museum because of their Assyrian collection, then you'll see the Basra list depicting this kind of thing. That, that the, what they would do is they would put a, a hook in the nose of their captive and they would put a chain on the hook. And so Manasseh is literally being dragged by a chain that is affixed to his nose, subjecting him both to physical torment and public humiliation. Manasseh, who had proudly reigned unchallenged in Jerusalem, is now placed in abject disgrace. Now, we are meant to notice that Manasseh's punishment was caused not by Ashurbanipal, but it was caused by the Lord. That's what the text says. Verse 11 says, it was the Lord who brought this calamity on the wicked king. All this was orchestrated by God. Manasseh, who sinned more boldly than any other Jewish king, also showed more thoroughly how sin leads to judgment from God. And he, practiced, he practiced wickedness out of a vain quest for personal expression and freedom, an ambition for power. But because of God's moral indignation and the judgment that followed, Manasseh's sin brought him into the most deplorable bondage. Now, Jesus taught that those who yield to sin are made slaves to sin, John eight thirty four. And Manasseh fulfilled that precept by buying into the lies that promised idolatry to pay off, that gross wickedness would yield pleasure. Well, sin lies. Instead, he discovered firsthand the New Testament teaching that sin subjects us to bondage, and bondage leads to death, Romans 6, verse 16. Now, informed readers of the Bible will realize that Manasseh was taken in chains to Babylon, not merely because of the historical circumstances of this story, but also to prefigure the dismal end to which his own sins would cast his people, Judah. The chronicler's reading, having just escaped from Babylon by God's grace, they would not have failed to make the connection. Manasseh was the forerunner. He committed the sins. He was the leader. They were going to follow him, not only in sin, but also in the Babylonian exile. As such, he shows how a plunge into evil not only enslaves us, but enslaves others. Oh, how the truth it is in our time. How many people are virtually enslaved, not merely by the sins they have committed, by the sins committed against them, the examples they've seen and have followed. Sin does this. Andrew Stewart comments, As Manasseh suffered the shame then of being taken as a slave into Babylon, he was gaining a foretaste taste of what his people would suffer because of him. Now, remarkably, in this des- desperate condition, Manasseh did the very last thing you would suspect him ever of doing. He turned to the Lord in prayer. Verse 12, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. Now, there is no parallel in the long record of Israel and, Israel's and Judah's kings that compares to the repentance of Manasseh. There were a few who were maybe as bad as he was. Ahab and Jezebel, for instance, come to mind. 
But none of them humbled themselves before the Lord and sincerely prayed for salvation. Manasseh did. The only real biblical parallel occurs in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, that Pharisee who so ferociously persecuted the early church until Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road and changed him into the Apostle Paul. That's the only real parallel. Manasseh prayed for God to show him grace. He confessed the guilt of his sin. He cast himself upon the Lord's mercy. Matthew Henry describes his remarkable conversion. He saw what he had brought himself to by his sin. He found the gods he had served were unable to help him. He knew that repentance was the only way of restoring his affairs, and therefore to him he returned, from whom he had revolted. Now you have to think that there was some influence, there was a memory from the prayers, the teaching of his father, Hezekiah, John Newton, in his story of turning to the Lord in the midst of a deadly storm. It was Bible verses taught to him as a little boy by his mother before he died. And the memory of those Bible verses were in his, was in his mind. And Newton called upon the Lord according to the Bible verses he'd memorized as a boy. That, that happens. Presumably that's what it was. He knew. He'd known all along, but his heart was not humbled. Now that it was, he called upon the Lord and was saved. Now, as remarkable as it is that so thoroughly wicked a man as Manasseh found the ability to confess his sin and humble himself before God, what is really astonishing is that God heard his plea and responded with saving mercy. Verse 13 says, He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. God's willingness to forgive the penitent sinner proves his faithfulness to the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, the very language, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. God's grace for Manasseh proves that he offers forgiveness to anyone who humbly confesses and calls on the Lord for salvation. In the words of Gordon McConville, Manasseh proves that no depth of moral turpitude precludes a return to the Lord by way of repentance. By showing mercy to Manasseh, yes, even to Manasseh, the Lord shows that there is no one who, can, who cannot be saved. No matter how great the sin or how wicked the sinner, if he or she calls upon the Lord in faith. Now, the original readers of Second Chronicles would have seen in the restoration of Manasseh an example of what they were hoping for. If you ask me for a subtitle of Second Chronicles, I would say it's the hope of grace. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an ashamed people, a tainted people. And, and they wonder, is there grace for us after the fall, after we have been in Babylon, after we have been rejected and sinned? That's what they were wondering. And, and like Manasseh, there are the readers here, their own fathers had gone to Babylon, and for the same reason, idolatry and wickedness. And they were in the process of coming back, or they had just come back to Jerusalem when Second Chronicles is written to them. Here's the question, would the Lord fully restore his grace? Was God willing to claim a shamed, tainted people once more as the objects of his love? I wonder if maybe you have asked the same question. As you hope to be restored from the wages of your own sin, well, Manasseh proves the claim of Romans 5.20, 
that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now that is not to say that grace encourages the freedom to sin. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is that no matter how deep the pit of despair and disgrace we find ourselves cast by the sins we have done, Manasseh proves that God's grace is greater still. God is willing and able to lift up the humble sinner and set him or her back in the shadow of his blessing. I think perhaps the best New Testament analogy of Manasseh's salvation is provided by the outcast leper who spied Jesus Christ walking down the road. It's in all three of the synoptic gospels. And in ancient Judah, you know, the leper was the the symbol of the misery, the living death that was sin, the shame and the alienation. And one of these suffering men, one of the lepers, in fact, Mark 140 says, one who was full of leprosy. He's a picture of Manasseh's heart. He called out to Jesus these words, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What a great thing to say to Jesus. If you are willing, you can, you can clean me, cleanse me. And Mark's gospel records that Jesus was moved with pity. Some translations say he was filled with compassion for the suffering man. Well, there's the question. Is Jesus willing? He said to the leper, he, the leper called upon him, if you're willing. And the gospel said he was moved with compassion. He was filled with mercy. And he cleansed him. No matter how wretched is the state of your soul through sin, Jesus has compassion for you, a compassion that more than meets your need, that abounds beyond it. And as far as Jesus being able, he stretched out his hand, Mark 141. He touched the leper. He said to him, I am willing, be clean. God had compassion for even wicked Manasseh after all the desecration, all the profane things he had done. My friend, God will have mercy on you as well. And when a sinner pleads humbly for God's forgiveness, God's grace is so full, it so abounds that he is willing and able to restore you fully, just as Manasseh was returned to Jerusalem and reinstalled on his throne. Here's the question, was Manasseh only motivated to confess his sin by the hopelessness of his situation? Is this one of those foxhole prayers that we hear about that's forgotten when the battle's over? Well, the chronicler assures us, to the contrary, that his confession and his faith were indeed sincere. Look at verse 13. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, the idolatrous king had learned how empty are the false god. God's promoted by the world. There's no point to religious pluralism because there's nothing there. They're all vain. They're false. He learned this. And they had been doing, they had been able to do nothing for him in his time of need. No, it was the God of his father Hezekiah. It was the God of his fathers David and Solomon, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the real and living God. He alone is able to save. And he realized this. This was his faith. And the proof of his conversion, of this conviction that the Lord alone is God, is given in the subsequent actions of Manasseh after he returned to Jerusalem and returned as a believer. Manasseh bore the fruits of true repentance and faith by laboring to undo the damage of his prior decades as king. This event 
probably happened in the last five years of his life. That would leave 45 years of iniquity to police up. But he worked at it. He first devoted himself to strengthening the security of God's city. Verse 14, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance of the fish gate and carried around Ophel. He raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all of the fortified cities of Judah. He started actually caring about his people and the security of them. He did something about it. More pointedly, verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. Now, that that would be a great, I don't know if Rembrandt did a picture of that, but he should have. Manasseh casting the idols out of the temple and over the walls of Jerusalem. That would be a great painting. How greatly it must have grieved his regenerated heart to face what he had done. To see in action the grave offense his actions had given to God, just as many others who are converted later in life grieve over their abusive conduct as a spouse or as a parent or as a community member. The only thing for Manasseh to do was to busy himself, cleaning out the idols he had installed, cleaning up the mess. And then he put true worship in place according to God's commandments. Verse 16, he also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. He commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. He didn't just get rid of the bad, he brought in the good. We have to do both. We have to get rid of the darkness. We have to shine the light. No longer would there be the kind of religious pluralism that tears down the spiritual fabric of a people, but he acted out of his conviction that the Lord alone is to be worshipped as God. Now, in short, Manasseh demonstrated the reality of his conversion by zealously applying himself to his duty as a servant of God. I don't think that you're not, you're not the king of Judah. You have different duties. But when you turn to the Lord, when you're forgiven, when you're renewed, when you're restored, you show that your salvation is real by zealously applying yourself to the duties that you do have as a servant of God. Matthew Henry writes, He now used his power to reform the people as before he had abused it to corrupt them. And so a newly converted Christian may likewise need to apologize to people that he or she previously have injured. Maybe to connect with alienated children or co-workers who've been pushed off by our sins. And these faithful works flow out of a renewed heart. And they bear testimony to the reality of our repentance. The New Testament will call them repentance and its fruits. Not just sorrow, but the fruits following through on it, casting out the idols, building up the walls. Andrew Stewart writes, works of repentance are never the foundation of our salvation, but they are signs that our salvation is genuine. Well, try though he might, there were limits to what Manasseh could accomplish, especially because his conversion seems to have happened very late in his tenure as king. The chronicler laments that when it came to the people, Manasseh's new and godly exhortations were not able completely, not completely, to overthrow his longer wicked example. Verse 17, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Well, they weren't worshiping idols at least, but they weren't. His bad example had kept them from true and faithful worship. Cyril Barber writes, He could command the people of Judah to serve the Lord, but the tentacles of paganism had become too intimately intertwined in the national psyche to be removed. 
Well, undoubtedly, Manasseh's chief frustration came with the persistently hardened heart of his son and heir, Ammon. This son did, verse 22, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father had shown him. So Ammon sacrificed at the same pagan altars that Manasseh had done. Presumably that would include, after Manasseh was dead, uh, more child sacrifice. Under Manasseh, Ammon, uh, unlike Manasseh, verse 22, Ammon did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon, even that expression, this Ammon, incurred guilt more and more. In judgment for his wickedness, Ammon was not permitted to reign long. He was murdered in a conspiracy of his servants, verse 24. His evil record reminds us that while God's grace forgives us of our sin, God's grace has not always removed the consequences of our sins in our own lives, in the lives of people. if If you drunkenly fall in a ditch and lose your leg, the gospel is not likely to grow it back. There are consequences to our sins, and Ammon is the consequence, practically speaking, of Manasseh's sin. You see, the reality is that each of us must repent of our own sins. And the unwillingness of Ammon to follow his father's humility before the Lord proved the ruin of his life and many others. Well, the postscript on Manasseh's life refers us back to 2 Kings, to contemplate the wickedness that he had done uh, it's found uh, in Second Kings chapter 21. He died, however, in faith. He, verse 19 says he slept with his fathers. He was buried in honor. And the chronicler's parting attention is focused on Manasseh's prayer. By the way, if you, if, in the Old Testament Apocrypha, there is a book called The Prayer of Manasseh. If you have a Bible with the Apocrypha in it, and I would not recommend it to you because... For one thing, they're boring, and on the other hand, they're not biblical. But some pious Jewish person wrote what maybe tradition has it. There's no reason for us to think it was actually his prayer, but it's actually a a very, it's it's imitating the godly prayers of the Old Testament. It may be something like what Manasseh actually prayed. There is no reason for us to think it is canonical. Certainly Jesus and the apostles never treated it as such. And yet it is the focal point of his life. Because God was moved by his entreaty, verse 19, after all his sin and his faithfulness. You see, a bad man offered a great and humble prayer. And a great and gracious God in mercy saved him. Manasseh is joined in his witness by the example of the Apostle Paul who said this, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I, of whom I, and the foremost, First Timothy 1.15. Can you give the same testimony that God has granted you forgiveness, restoration, and blessing through the grace of repentance that leads to saving faith? Well, let me say that if you cannot, there is no reason why you should not entreat the Lord in the same manner that Manasseh did. Confess your sin. Acknowledge the change it has forged to put you into bondage. Entreat the favor of God by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ, his son, who died as a sacrifice that we might be forgiven. The example of Manasseh assures you that God will not refuse the humble prayer of repentance and faith. No, he will not. Instead, if you will call upon the Lord in that way, you will discover personally 
the fulfilled promise of the gospel. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father in heaven, we thank you for this remarkable gospel moment in the Old Testament. And Father, I pray that each of us would be able to say, I know what that is. I have prayed that prayer. I have experienced that forgiveness. I am now living that life of reformation and and renewal. And Father, I pray for those who cannot, that you would, through your word, that you would do it now. It was your grace that brought that mercy to Manasseh. Your grace is what opened his hardened heart, opened the hearts of those who hear, that they would call upon your name, because if they do, they will be saved. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.